Welcome to Fertility and Sterility on Air, the podcast where you can stay current on the latest global research in the field of reproductive medicine. This podcast brings you an overview of this month's journal, in-depth discussion with authors, and other special features. FNS on Air is brought to you by Fertility and Sterility Family of Journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and is hosted by Dr. Kurt Barnhart, Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Eve Feinberg, Editorial Editor, Dr. Micah Hill, Media Editor, and Dr. Pietro Bordaletto, Interactive Associate-in-Chief. Welcome to all of our listeners to another episode of Fertility and Sterility on Air. I'm Micah Hill, the media editor of FNS, and we're joined today with co-hosts Eve Feinberg, Pietro Bordaletto, and Kate Devine. Good morning, friends. Good morning, Micah. Good morning, everyone. Kurt, you're here in spirit. I know you're taking down UPenn Monday, holiday Monday call. Uh, we're thinking of you. We are missing our fearless leader, Kurt Barnhart, today. Kurt, we hope we are enjoying your working day off uh, from the podcast. So we're going to jump right in. We've got a lot of front matter that's great in the journal this month from our very own editorial editor, Eve Feinberg. We have a views and reviews on uh, endometriosis, changing the quote-unquote scope of diagnosing endometriosis, the new frontier of non-invasive markers for diagnosing endo. She has experts ranging from uh, Dr. Steve Young to Dr. Gibbons to Dr. Avery talking about all sorts of non-diagnostic modalities for endometriosis, uh, including uh, blood markers and imaging. Uh, Eve, give us a teaser. Why did you choose to do this as your views and reviews? Uh, thanks, Micah. I think that the field really is changing. And as an editorial editor, I always try to get ahead of what are the trends and how can we bring those trends to our readership? And I think that the old laparoscopy, the old thought that laparoscopy is the gold standard, I think that's changing. And there's been rapid development of non-invasive markers. And so this is really an attempt to update everyone. And I, you know, full disclosure, wanted to learn more myself what's out there and where are we at with the field. Great. Thank you, Eve. So I encourage everyone to read that. A very good set of articles uh, on the current state of diagnosing endometriosis. The Fertile Battle is from editorial editor uh, Dr. Nanette Santoro. Masters of the menstrual cycle or masters of the life cycle? Should menopausal care be part of the skill set of an REI? And as an expert in menopausal care, she makes the argument for why that uh, should be the case and then has a fertile battle debate uh, between two other experts on why that should and shouldn't be. Uh, honestly, as a program director, I found myself torn reading through it. I want our fellows and us as specialists to be experts in everything that's within our domain. But I also realize that uh, even in a military practice where we're not incentivized to CIVF, we just don't get these patients referred to us all that often. And uh, as we're talking about the future of what our specialty will look like, a very timely article looking at another uh, aspect of that. Uh, she says, we spent a great deal of time the past two years debating the future of REI and how we should take care of the infertile population. 15% of women will experience infertility, yet all of them will experience menopause, as she makes her argument for why that's important for our training. Pietro. I had, this, I had this discussion with my fellows not too long ago when they were asking, why do we need to learn about menopause? And I casually reminded them, you have patients with POI that you'll be taking care of, right? The goal is not to end the relationship by getting them pregnant. The goal is once they've completed their childbearing, talk to them about HRT, talk to them, come up with a game plan for taking care of them into their 40s and early 50s and, and manage symptoms. That's well within our purview. Um, and I think we've we've lost a little bit of that, but I'm so glad that Nanette wrote this article and I really love the title. Love a good catchy title. Yeah, I also think that we're masters of hormones. Like we really understand estrogen. We really understand progesterone. I think we should be caring for these patients. I really do. I mean, maybe not a full menopausal practice, but I think that we're perfectly well suited to answer complicated questions on hormones. Absolutely. And and you're right, Pietro. Nanette is the, the master of a catchy title. I do think that while we may be the best suited to take care of these patients, it also shouldn't be downplayed at all the extent to which general OBGYNs just need to be masterful at this as, as well. And I do think... A lot of women in their menopausal years are, are underserved by their, their generalists. So we all have to kind of work together to make sure that we are um, offering the full body of, of treatment for these women. Well said all around. And the final piece from an editorial editor is from Madelon Van Veli on 
stay away from authorship and misconduct. It just continues in the line of articles we've had, especially coming from Kurt as our editor-in-chief, on making sure we have the utmost uh, research integrity and Eve uh, being on the uh, research committee with ASRM and all the efforts that are going on there to make sure that all of the material you read in FNS is up to the very highest of standards. So another good article in, in that direction. So we're going to dive right now into the actual science that's in the journal this month. And Eve, we're starting with you on the seminal contribution. Is too much of a good thing bad? AMH and donors, is it a bad thing when it's too high? Bottom line, no. <laughs> but let's let's dive in. This article is titled Optimal Anti-Malarian Hormone Levels in Oocyte Donors, and it's a national database analysis. And I'm glad that Kate is joining us today because I'm going to ask you to uh, jump in at, at some point. The first author here is Papri Sarkar, and senior author is Philip Romansky, and this was a study that was done out of Shady Grove. The objective of this study was to evaluate the relationship between high AMH levels in oocyte donors and then pregnancy outcomes among donor oocyte recipients. The reason this study was done is that some previous studies had suggested worse outcomes, such as lower usable embryo rates and lower live birth rates in cycles where more than 30 eggs were retrieved. So given the predictive nature of high AMH with regard to the number of eggs retrieved, the study sought to examine the outcomes from donors who had an AMH greater than five compared to less than five. And they chose five as a cutoff because it represents the 95th percentile for AMH. It was a retrospective cohort study using the Donor Egg USA database, and there were 3,871 donor recipient cycles from 954 donors, with roughly half of the donors having an AMH over 5. For each recipient, the first egg lot that was received and used to create an embryo and undergo a transfer was included. They compared embryo transfer success between groups was the main outcome, with ongoing pregnancy rate per embryo transfer. Neither live birth nor cumulative live birth was measured. Secondary outcomes were things like fertilization rate and the number of usable embryos. The authors found that there were no significant differences in ongoing pregnancy rates between the two AMH groups. When AMH was evaluated as a continuous variable, and I really liked how it was both evaluated both dichotomously and continuously, there were still no differences. There was a subgroup of recipients in this group who elected to pursue PGT, and the authors looked at aneuploid rates in that group as well, and also saw that there were no difference in aneuploidy rates between donors in these two groups of AMH. So overall, I think it was a really nicely done study. I think it's very reassuring. It shows comparable success per embryo transfer from donors across varying levels of AMH. And I think there are a couple of takeaway points from this. First, I think it's reassuring outcomes are the same. I know previously we had talked about whether all embryos have the same reproductive potential. And I think this actually adds strength to the argument that they do. For egg donors where you get all of the eggs from a single retrieval cycle, or even where you split with one other couple, you can imagine that there might be a higher cumulative success or greater likelihood of having more than one child from a single retrieval in donors with a high AMH who produce many oocytes. Though, to be clear, the data from this study does not actually show that. Second, and I think this is with some caution, there's obvious financial incentive to stimulate egg donors aggressively. And this is especially true for egg bank cycles where the cost is fixed, but the profits increase with increasing number of eggs retrieved, and therefore additional egg lots that can be sold. Even though severe OHSS is not a risk with the use of a alone trigger, I do think we all need to recognize that retrieval of 50 or 70 eggs is probably a lot more painful for an egg donor than retrieval of 20 or 30. And so despite these data, I think we still need to use a fair amount of prudence in our own management of these cycles. And finally, this is not the first time I'm saying this, I would still very much like to see a paper that shows the total number of live births per retrieval cycles. Do cycles that yield 50 eggs have more live births than cycles that yield 20 eggs? I think the answer is likely yes, but to date, these data have not been published. And so I think instead of looking at outcomes by egg donor recipient, I'd like to see a paper that looks at cumulative outcomes by egg donor. Hey, I know you're an author on this paper, and both you and Mike have published data using Egg Bank USA cycles. 
It seems like it would be an easy study to do, especially now that Egg Bank has been around for over a decade. And there should be plenty of donors where the entire lots have been used and a comparison could be made. Curious on your thoughts. Yeah, Eve, we certainly um, struggled with that in the study design of this and other studies and, and would very much like to report the data that way. I couldn't agree with you more. We are, to some extent, when we get data from an egg bank beholden to what they are comfortable with providing to us and what they can and cannot link. And so unfortunately, with with these data sets, it's not something that we can do. I hope that with other large data sets in the future, you know, as you allude to, we we really do want to know, should we be stimulating patients this hard? Is there an advantage Uh, separate and apart from, you know, the wise caution you note in terms of looking out for the safety of the donors? Is it even helping anybody to get so many eggs? You know, I agree with you. We need to to study that and hopefully um, moving forward, we can collect these data prospectively. Yeah. I mean, I just feel like if, if we can't get the data, then what is being hidden? Like, is there kind of a maximum number of live births that we're seeing per retrieval cycle? And if there is a maximum, then are we are we giving egg lots to couples that may have a lower likelihood of success? And actually, one of the things that I liked about this study, even though it only looked at single one cycle, it was these donor lots were randomly allocated. And so I think that does lend some argument to the side of like, actually, probably not an embryo is an embryo from a donor egg cycle. And the reproductive potential is the same. And therefore, you can potentially extrapolate that if you have more eggs, you may have more live births, and there's not a maximum, but show me the data. Yes. And the variance in the data might, to some extent, allude to that too, right? If some of the, the recipients are getting 40 eggs, 45 to 50 of a 50 egg lot versus one to five of a 15 egg lot. But the outcomes are pretty consistent in this data set. So I think that that is overall reassuring, but you're right, not the perfect study designed to answer that question. Shout out to Hi. senior author Philip Romansky mentoring a young REI trainee in a great project published in FNS. Yeah, and that yes. was a really nicely done study. So kudos to the study group. Excellent. So now we're moving on to the andrology section of the journal. Uh, Kate, one of the topics we've talked a lot about over the last couple of years has been uh, how do you take uh interrogate the DNA integrity of sperm and looking at DFI and other things. And this is talking about a new method or a different method to potentially do that. Tell us about that. Absolutely. And I, um, for sure, D- uh, DNA fragmentation index and just generally the conversations around sperm DNA integrity have been a hot topic in recent years. And I think kind of an undulating topic over time in terms of whether folks think that it's a useful parameter or not. So I think at the end of this study, unfortunately, still an unanswered question, but does raise a somewhat novel technique for evaluating it. So this article is entitled Mean Number of DNA Breakpoints, Illuminating Sperm DNA Integrity and IVF Outcomes. And it's by Wenjing Zhou et al. And it's a retrospective cohort study. It evaluated the relationship of semen analysis parameters with both sperm DNA fragmentation index as assessed by SCSA, which is pretty much what we most commonly see reported in the literature. And then it also assesses semen analysis parameters with this more recent entrant into the diagnostic armamentarium for sperm DNA integrity. And so this modality is called mean number of DNA breakpoints or MDB. And so this latter diagnostic modality was first reported by Jan et al. in 2022. So truly is, you know, kind of brand spanking new and not a lot of clinical data out there. And so I think um, the novelty of this study is really, um, you know, what makes it a, a worthwhile read. And so the, the authors that developed and first published on this study proposed it as potentially more direct accurate, and clinically significant as an indicator for evaluating sperm DNA integrity. So this current study kind of, you know, endeavored to see whether those initial authors' claims were true. And in the current study, the authors looked at 93 men whose partners underwent IVF or ICSI, and I think that part's 
important. It was IVF or ICSI, and we don't know how many of which one or who underwent which one. Secondarily, the authors of the study wanted to correlate these parameters, both sperm BFI and mean DNA breakpoints with clinical IVF outcomes. And the clinical IVF outcomes they looked at were fertilization rate, quote, high quality embryo rate, and it's notable that this is cleavage stage embryos, pregnancy rate, clinical pregnancy rate, and implantation rate. And so what were the findings? In their unadjusted primary analyses, which again, these were to associate DFI and MDB with semen analysis parameters, the only significant associations found were that of elevated DFI and elevated MDB with reduced progressive sperm motility. Then they also found that elevated DFI was associated with reduced sperm concentration. They then went on to conduct an adjusted analysis and adjusted for age and semen concentration and found that there were also associations between both markers and astenospermia. The authors uh, used an ROC curve analysis um, where they used the sensitivity of MDB to detect reduced progressive motility. So whether that's the sensitivity and specificity that we're really care most about is is an important question, I think. Uh, But the threshold that they found was 0.37, and they used that threshold to signify DNA impairment in MDB. So if there was an MDB greater than 0.37, the DNA was impaired. And then what they found was that for clinical outcomes, this threshold, so any man who had an impairment of greater than that threshold did have a risk or was had an association um, with lower rate of high quality cleavage stage embryos. There were no other correlations found with any other clinical parameter for DFI or MDB. So specifically, they did not find any decrease in fertilization, pregnancy rate, clinical pregnancy rate, or implantation rate. You know, in short, I think this is an interesting study. I think that, you know, a lot of our patients are always asking us about DNA fragmentation index and what can we do to improve male fertility and the quality of their DNA. And so it makes sense to me that to look at the actual mean number of breakpoints may be a more direct assessment of DNA integrity than what DNA fragmentation index can assess. That that said, there's some questions as to how they attained their uh, MDB threshold. Also, the patients had heterogeneous treatment algorithms, including IVF and ICSI, and there were variable variable numbers of cleavage stage embryos transferred. So probably not the most representative of contemporary U.S. practice, but this was the practice of the authors and, and the clinical outcomes that they had to assess. You know, it's also really important to note that this study does not demonstrate clinical utility of either DNA fragmentation index or MDB. Really what it shows is an association with a much more easily obtained semen analysis parameter, which is progressive motility. So it's a little bit circular in its argument because we already do a semen analysis and we already can see if a a man has decreased progressive motility. So it's, it's a little bit unclear what's being added here. And especially since the the most important clinical parameters they assessed were not different between groups. And so even though, you know, DFI has been included in the most recent WHO manual, in my opinion, it really remains to be seen whether any test of sperm DNA fragmentation is additive to the infertility evaluation, you know, particularly in the absence of validated interventions. So, you know, I turn this over to the group to say, how are you using DFI in your practice? And of course, if, if MDB is easy to do and better than DFI somehow, we're going to switch. Um, but I think the, the question remains whether sperm DNA integrity is important at all and, and, and really how should we be using it? Kate, I think the, the elephant in the room of this study is that they looked at cleavage stage embryos. If you're trying to sort out what the male contribution is to to embryo development, you you really want to look at a blastulation rate. You want to look at a a high quality blastocyst. I think the they really missed the mark on being able to answer that question for us, and they maybe would have arrived at something a little bit more interesting and and useful. Maybe not, but when you stop at day three embryo transfer is kind of your your endpoint. 
you kind of lose me uh, on the generalizability and, and what this study means for my practice. Eve, what do you think? I see you shaking your head. Are you, are you with me on that one? I know we've disagreed on DNA fragmentation in the past. No, I mean, a, a thousand percent. I mean, if we think about when that embryonic genome becomes activated, that's really where you see the progression to blastocyst stage. So to use DNA fragmentation and then stop at cleavage stage to me made no sense. And you could argue, you know, give the authors the benefit of the doubt and say, well, they did look at pregnancy rates. And so clearly those that achieved pregnancy achieved blastulation. But I think it's just a, a much more indirect marker because you're then factoring in endometrial and maternal factors into the equation. And so it's not as pristine as looking at blast conversion rates. And so I, I with you a thousand percent on this one. I think the bottom line is we just don't know and we're struggling to figure it out. To me, this felt a little bit like a fishing expedition of let's do some regression analyses. Let's see which parameters are associated with what, and then let's develop some sort of a cut point. It wasn't established a priori that this is what we're gonna look at and this is how we're gonna define it. Um, at least that was my read on the article. Right. Yeah, I agree on the cleavage stage piece. And at the end of the day, yes, it should fall out in clinical pregnancy, but you need a much more um, well-defined patient population and a larger sample size if you expect to see that from something like DFI or MDB. I think you all hit wonderfully on the, the clinical take-home points and all the same thoughts I had. From an actual study standpoint, I was just disappointed that they didn't actually statistically compare the two tests. If they want, they conclude that this new test is superior, there are ways to compare sensitivities of tests, ROCs of tests. They don't actually do that. They just give the numbers. And where it's better for the MDB, they say it's better. Where it's better in the opposite How direction. How much better? They don't say it was better or, or that it was worse. So the, the authors kind of show us their bias. They wanted this test to be better, which we all have biases when we when we write. But I was just disappointed that they didn't go the step further and actually interrogate the, the tests as tests themselves compared to each other. I thought that would have been uh, at least able to say that there's a superior association. I don't, I don't even know I was convinced of that, although as Kate said, it makes sense that that might be the case. I'll, I'll come on from a methods perspective you gotta you gotta break out insemination and ICSI cycles or just focus on one kind of fertilization technique you know it's particularly when you're talking about a male factor study that feels like low-hanging fruit maybe for their next iteration of it yeah well stay tuned great but as kate said i think at the start this is novel and so i think that's why it's important and, and we may be seeing this uh but if a vendor is showing up at your door tomorrow with this test uh, maybe ask some more questions before you start offering it to patients All right, we're jumping into a trio of articles. If there's a theme this month, it's on BMI. So we're going into the uh, excellent hands of Pietro and Eve to talk us through these next three articles. I'll turn it over to you. Thanks, Micah. We're going to move away from sperm for a second and come back to our uh, our sweet spot, frozen embryos and, and, and the uterus. I have a great study by my co-resident friend, Dr. Jennifer Bakkinson, Eve's former fellow who's now graduated, and senior author, Dr. Christina Boots from Northwestern, entitled Frozen Embryo Transfer Outcomes Decline with Increasing Female BMI with Female but Not Male Factor Infertility, an analysis of 56,000 euploid blast transfers. So I think we've said this stat before, but it's worth saying out loud again, 40% of reproductive age women in the United States are obese. And this number doesn't seem to be getting any smaller. Every time the CDC publishes data, that trend line just keeps going up. In addition to all the negative health impacts of obesity, like metabolic and the cardiovascular risk, there also seems to be a negative impact on fertility. Some of it, of course, is from anovulation, but some of it's also longer time to conception, even among obese women with regular menstrual cycles. So there's something else going on here. Unfortunately, ART doesn't really close this gap. The 2016 SART study of 250,000 fresh IVF cycles noted higher rates of miscarriage, lower live birth rates in women at the highest BMI categories. And this has since been corroborated by two other meta-analyses on the topic. But what about frozen embryo transfer cycles? Here, the data is a lot more conflicted, as lots of old data include slow freeze embryos, day three embryo transfers, without good controls for underlying infertility diagnosis, such as PCOS, which is just so prevalent in increasing BMIs. So what the authors of this study did was to look at the association of BMI with pregnancy outcomes among a large national cohort of patients undergoing euploid frozen embryo transfers, a more modern practice pattern. They looked at SART course data from 2016 to 2019 and categorized women into the WHO BMI categories. 
with normal BMI women serving as a reference group. Their outcomes included clinical pregnancy, pregnancy loss, and live birth rate. They did a nice multivariable logistic regression, which was used to assess the association between BMI and each outcome, first as a categorical variable, then as a continuous variable. Just like Eve's study on AMH, I really like this. This is smart. The five-point BMI increments can really mask some of the effect, so it's nice when you see the AMH and BMI being looked at continuously as well. They adjusted for the things you wanted to adjust for, age, race, ethnicity, prior pregnancy loss, smoking status, and of course, indication for the PGT, whether it was A, M, or SR. And they finally performed two subgroup analyses. They looked at PCOS as the only infertility diagnosis and those cycles only with a male factor. In total, they had 56,000 cycles available, of which 56% were normal BMI, 24% were overweight, and then only 2% had class 3 obesity. Unfortunately, the class 4 obesity group was 0.15% of the data set. And this is probably just due to a limited number of centers caring for these patients with high BMI in the outpatient setting. I know personally only a handful of academic centers caring for patients with a BMI above 50. The mean age of the cohort was 35. 67% of them were white, and as you got heavier, the proportion of patients with a PCOS diagnosis increased from 11% in the low BMI group to as high as 35% in the BMI over 50 group. So what did they find? The clinical pregnancy rates were significantly lower among patients with obesity. There was a progressive decrease in the odds of clinical pregnancy with increasing BMI. When BMI was analyzed as a continuous variable, the odds of clinical pregnancy decreased by 2% with every one unit increase in BMI. That's a great counseling stat. I like a number that I can put in my back pocket and tell patients, you know, BMI point for you is eight pounds. If you lost two or three of those points, I can probably increase your odds of clinical pregnancy with a single euploid embryo transfer by a little bit. That's meaningful. I like that number. So 2% increase is the number. The pregnancy loss rates were 11% for normal BMI women and increased significantly among those patients with higher BMIs, up to 20% among those with a BMI of 50 or greater. And again, when analyzed analyzed continuously, the odds of pregnancy loss increased by 2% with every one unit increase in BMI. Boom, another nice counseling point. Finally, live birth rates. Live birth rates were the highest among those with normal or overweight BMI and decreased slightly with lower BMI and more markedly with higher BMI to a low of 37% among those with a BMI greater or equal to 50. And You guessed it, when analyzed continuously, the odds of live birth decreased by 2% with each increased unit of BMI, the exact same pattern. With regard to the two subgroup analyses, when they pulled out PCOS diagnosis patients, everything trended worse with an increasing BMI when they analyzed by BMI category, but with more mixed statistical significance. The only statistically significant patients were those with class 2 obesity compared to normal BMI. And lastly, when they looked at cycles with male factor-only diagnosis, there was not a clear trend for any of the outcomes analyzed. So in some summary, there seems to be something here. In reproductive-age women undergoing euploid frozen embryo transfer, increasing BMI is associated with lower clinical pregnancy, higher pregnancy loss, and lower live birth rates compared to normal BMI, with the poorest outcomes being observed in women with a class 3 and class 4 obesity. We've talked a lot about why. Well, the leading hypothesis put forward by these authors here are poor oocyte and embryo quality, as well as impaired endometrial receptivity. And I know Eve's going to talk a little bit about what role the uterus has with regards to outcomes in obese women undergoing ART. But the authors make a point to point out this concept of lipotoxicity, where circulating free fatty acids increase reactive oxygen species and cause cellular damage that leads to chronic inflammatory states that are induced by this adipose tissue, and probably not good for the eggs and probably not good for the endometrium but stay tuned, more on this from Eve's paper. But this isn't all bad news. You read this paper like, oh my goodness, obesity is terrible. One important thing to say out loud is that the absolute rates of live birth are quite high, even in the highest obesity categories. In the male factor-only analysis, the live birth rates were above 48% in every single BMI category, including the class 4 obesity. In the class 4 obesity group, the live birth rate was 62%. That's high. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention one thing. We've only been focusing on the high BMI group, but one important finding of this study was the other end of the spectrum. And the authors found that pregnancy and live birth rates were also diminished among patients with a BMI lower than 18. The thought here, of course, is that underweight women have an inadequate nutrition and low energy balance, as well as decreased leptin levels, which all may impact reproductive function. This probably deserves more attention in future work, but there seems to be a Goldilocks BMI here. Not too big, not too small, somewhere just right. Eve, Micah, 
Kate, does this kind of jive what you guys have been seeing in your clinical practice where you can help get patients with higher BMIs pregnant, but you kind of have to put the caveat that their pregnancy loss rate is going to be a little bit higher and that their live birth rate may be a little bit lower? I think it's absolutely consistent. And I think it's very consistent with what we see with medically unassisted conceptions as well. I've been seeing a lot of consults for recurrent pregnancy loss in women who fall into class three obesity categories. And rather than jumping to IVF PGT as a cure-all, those embryos that they're losing are probably euploid. I think really looking at diet lifestyle modifications and possibly even use of some of the new GLP-1 agonists is probably the way to go. And I think understanding that pregnancy losses is much more so than aneuploidy in this population of patients. Thanks, Eve. There's another great study in this issue's FNS that also kind of looks at the same topic, but in a slightly different way that I think is nice to kind of pair together when we're talking about what's the role, what's the impact of BMI on reproductive outcomes. This is a second PGT BMI study that I want to tell you about. It's entitled Higher Live Birth Rates Are Associated with Normal BMI in PGTA FET Cycles. Again, a SART course study. First author here is Dr. Andrew Peterson, and the senior author is Dr. Sangeeta Jindal. They also utilized SARC-CORE's data, this time from 2014 to 2017. Slightly differently, they used autologous and donor egg-derived euploid frozen embryo transfer cycle data. Their primary outcomes were similar, live birth rate. Their secondary outcomes were clinical pregnancy, biochemical pregnancy, as related to maternal BMI. Their methods were a little bit different. They used some slightly different regression analyses. Here they used a generalized additive mixed models um, methodology to estimate nonlinear relationships between BMI and their outcomes, adjusting for all the things you would want adjusted for. And then they also fit a log binomial generalized estimating equation to numerically quantify that relationship and compute relative ratios, which for the purpose of this study can be interpreted as the relative difference in probability of pregnancy or live birth for each BMI group compared to their reference group, which was the BMI of 23 to 25. Unfortunately for us, when comparing one study to the other, they use slightly different BMI thresholds. They use BMI thresholds of differing sizes, BMI 18.5 to 20, 20 to 23, 23 to 25, and so on. And they did this to balance the number of patients in each group, and in their words, to provide a more granular estimate of the effect of BMI. Not a bad idea, a nuanced statistical choice, but important when you're kind of comparing one study to the other. Let me tell you what they found, and spoiler alert, not that different from the last study. So in total, they had 77,000 PGTA cycles from 55,000 patients, similar age 36, BMI was mostly in the normal range, most women were multigravid, and only 40% of women here were white. Three quarters of the patients undergoing IVF were undergoing IVF for a female factor diagnosis. One thing off the bat, and I'm so glad Kate and Mike are here, 16% of these cycles were double euploid embryo transfer cycles. I see Kate shaking her head, I see Eve shaking her head, and Mike is shaking his head too. I'm going to take a moment and do a, a new segment on the podcast, Sart, called Sart Would Like to Remind Everyone. And today, Sart would like to remind everyone that elective single embryo transfer is the national goal, particularly with euploid embryo transfers. Can I get an amen, Kate? Amen, Pietro. I, I like digress. The segment. Let's get back to the science. So when they first looked at the, the shape of the relationship between BMI and live birth rate, they noted it was an inverted U. So this was after adjustment for all the covariates you want adjusted for, which meant that the reproductive outcomes were kind of optimal in the middle, BMI of 23 to 25, but started to suffer on the extremes, low BMI and high BMI. Patients with the, the extremes of weight had progressive decline in their outcomes the further you got away from that BMI of 23 to 25, which for them was their Goldilocks BMI, such that patients with class 3 obesity had a 27% lower probability of live birth compared to the reference group. This, of course, included low BMI women as well, but not nearly as dramatically so, meaning that a BMI of less than 18 had an 11% lower chance of live birth compared to the reference group. So for this issue of FNS, we have two studies that kind of tell us similar things with slightly different methods. Too much weight or too little weight negatively impact reproductive outcomes in frozen embryo transfer cycles where euploid embryos are being transferred. Now, what's one to do about it? The second paper states that the BMI of 23 to 25 is where best outcomes are seen. BMI is clearly, that BMI is clearly an aspirational goal for many, including me. But this doesn't mean that pregnancies aren't being achieved at lower and high BMIs. They are. These outcomes don't look half bad. 
But what I think we're missing is the bigger picture of, yeah, we can get them pregnant, and yeah, we can get them discharged at eight weeks, but what's happening once that patient's in the hand of an obstetrician? We really miss out on the nine-month-later outcomes, where we don't see the effect that class 4 pregnancy, class 4 obesity has on maternal and neonatal outcomes, including gestational diabetes, preeclampsia, C-section rate, hemorrhage, admission to the NICU, you name it. And Eve, I'm glad that you mentioned this earlier. I've been really thinking long and hard about how these GLP-1 class of medications fits into our practice. And the more I think about it, the more I think that their rapid and sustained weight loss is probably worth us figuring out how to incorporate into our practice pathway. The data for pre-pregnancy weight loss and comorbidity optimization is 100% there already. That's not data that we need to create. That data exists and it's been out in the world for a long time. What I'm saying is let's take that and run with it in REI land, where we have the benefit of putting patients through cycles and fragmenting the IVF cycle with the actual conception cycle, the frozen embryo transfer cycle that happens later. We're worried about ovarian reserve. That's a really nice paradigm to make the embryos now, help patients lose weight, optimize them for pregnancy, not just for transfer outcomes, then have them get pregnant. Eve, what do you think? You have a you have some experience with this locally at Northwestern, particularly with Dr. Boots's um, clinic. Yeah, so we were talking a little bit just for our listeners before we started recording about should REIs be prescribing GLP-1 agonists? And I think, again, this goes into the scope, and maybe that's another fertile battle on what is the scope of our practice, but I favor a more comprehensive scope, and maybe that's because we're a teaching program and have a fellowship program. And I really want our fellows to know everything from how to prescribe medications to how to manage menopause, be it the um, 49-year-old who's starting to have hot flashes versus the POI patient. And so I, I argue for more comprehensive. We do have a PCOS clinic in our in our practice that is run by Christina Boots. And our fellows are starting to take on some of those patients more independently as well. And part of that wheelhouse is weight optimization with the use of GLP-1 agonists. And so we've had this debate in our practice or this discussion in our practice on should we be managing weight loss prior to conception attempts? And I think probably yes. The other point that I want to bring up, and I just want to temper something that you said. So we know that we know that GLP-1 agonists will have profound weight loss, probably uh, more along the lines of what we had seen previously with bariatric surgery than like traditional diet exercise where you had a 5 to 10% weight loss. And um, there's a fabulous uh, paper that came out in the New England Journal about a year and a half ago looking at like all of the outcomes from these medications showing like great efficacy in a general population. I think the question, though, is we can reduce weight, but can we change outcomes? And are we treating a number or are we actually treating the patient? And I think that is yet to be determined. There are marked, fast, rapid weight loss that we see with these drugs. But is that going to translate down the road, uh, 40 weeks down the road, is that going to translate to a healthier outcome? Or, you know, are there some subtle nutritional deficiencies that may actually impair outcomes? And the recommendation post-bariatric surgery is, is to not conceive for two years. And some of that has to do with the uh, weight loss and the metabolic adjustments that are needed. And some of that has to do with vitamin and nutritional deficiencies that are seen. And so I don't know. I think this is uncharted territory that really is begging to be studied. But I think it's intriguing. And I do think, again, like these are hormones that are being manipulated. Um, and I think that's well within the wheelhouse of an REI to consider expanding our practice. And I think the other question is, how do we, how do you teach an old dog new tricks? Like, how do we, how do we learn this new how do we expand our practice? Like, what do people do? Yeah, you know, while we've kind of, in some ways, had our heads buried in the sand, obsessing over uh, endometrial receptivity, you know, there's really been a revolution in the treatment of obesity in, in this country. And it's amazing um, and an unfolding story. And, you know, we absolutely need to contribute to this research. And I think it will likely require, you know, multi-center collaborative studies. And I, I hope that we can get it together and do those. And, you know, these, these questions about weight loss and, and again, Goldilocks BMIs, 
you know, get very quickly to the heart of medical ethics and the principles of autonomy and versus non-maleficence, right? So at the end of the day, we again need to be able to counsel our patients as to this is this is what you risk by entering your pregnancy at this BMI versus waiting and freezing embryos is is a great tool in terms of their declining fertility. That said, some patients just don't want to wait. So it's a challenge we face every day. And, um, you know, good to have more tools, but but still challenges. I think where the GLP class of medications really changes the name of the game is the they don't have to wait as long. Uh, attempts at like n- traditional weight loss with diet and exercise are slow and they take a long time to get there. All the data that's coming out from these GLP-1 medications seems to suggest that it happens pretty quickly. And while you're on the medications, it kind of stays it's persistent. You you have a durable response to it. And I think once we learn a little bit more about them and how safe they are pre-pregnancy, do they actually change those third trimester outcomes, those placentally mediated outcomes? I think we're at the dawn of a kind of a very new paradigm on how to take care of these patients. And it'd be smart of us to participate and educate ourselves about it, but also do some of these studies. So Rick Legro, if you're listening, this is a great PCOS study just waiting to happen. All right. Thank you, Pietro. So it seems like, Pietro, the two studies convince us that there's at least an association with BMI and these outcomes. Eve, there's one more paper drilling down on where that association may lie. Tell us about that paper. Yeah, this was a really nice study to separate out whether or not it is the egg or the endometrium. The title of this article is Association Between Oocyte Donors or Recipients BMI with Clinical Outcomes After First Single Blast Transfers. The uterus is the mostly effective. And first author was Gemma Fabozzi, and senior author was Joaquin Yasser from EVRMA Global Research Alliance. The objective of this study was to assess if high BMI in either oocyte donors or recipients is associated with poorer outcomes after first single blast transfer. This was a retrospective study, including 1,394 single embryo transfers from 1,394 oocyte donors. BMI was divided into four groups, less than 18, underweight, 18 to 25, 24.9, normal weight, 25 to 29.9 overweight and greater than or equal to 30 obese. I do want to call out, this is an Italian study, so the demographics are different than what you would see in the U.S. 82% of donors were normal weight, 6% were underweight, and 12% were overweight. 67% of recipients were normal weight, 20% were overweight, and only 7.3% were obese. All oocytes were vitrified at two egg banks and then warmed at eight IVF clinics. Primary outcome was live birth per single embryo transfer according to donor or recipient BMI. Secondary outcome was miscarriage rate per clinical pregnancy. They utilized a generalized additive model to create a graphical representation between predicted miscarriage and live birth rates and donors and recipients BMI. These data are really beautifully presented and are really the crux of the results. And I encourage you to look at the supplemental fingers when you read the paper. Both live birth rate and miscarriage rate as a function of donor and recipient BMI are graphically shown with different shading to show these probabilities. Let me see if I can parcel this down. Here is what they found. Positive pregnancy test and clinical pregnancy rate per blast SET was independent of donor or recipient BMI. So consistent with what we were seeing before with regard to the likelihood of that embryo yielding a positive pregnancy test. However, when they looked at live birth rates, they were highest in the recipients with normal weight. Um, Pregnancy rates were 41% in this group. The group with obesity had a 28% live birth rate, and those who were overweight had a 37% live birth rate. The difference in live birth rates were explained by differences in miscarriage rates among the groups. So the total miscarriage rate was 24% among the overweight recipients and 34% among obese recipients compared to 18% in normal weight recipients. And I think these data are very much in line with what we were discussing earlier. Where I think the paper is really unique is in looking at the interactions between BMI of the donor and BMI of the recipient. And I can't think of another paper that has looked at this in this way. 
So obese recipients did poorly and had high miscarriage rates, about 33 to 35%, with both normal weight and overweight donors. But I think the most interesting finding here is that overweight recipients had a miscarriage rate of 21% with a normal weight donor, but a miscarriage rate 10 points higher, 11 points higher, 32% with an overweight donor. So looking at the overweight recipients, when you place the, when you match those overweight recipients with an overweight egg donor, you saw an increase in miscarriage rate. However, I do want to add some words of caution because the overall numbers of obese patients and obese and overweight egg donors was quite low. When the data are broken down, many of these groups contain very small numbers, and I think it should be replicated in the U.S. The authors conclude that we need to pay attention to both the metabolic environment of the recipient and the egg donor, and that the effect of obesity is likely more relevant on the endometrium and environment into which we place the embryo or oocyte, but we should not ignore the BMI of the oocyte donor. We may also want to consider donor BMI for overweight patients and perhaps counsel to consider a more normal weight BMI in this situation. So I know it's a lot to unpack and a lot of numbers. I tried to simplify it without getting overly simple, but I do think it's intriguing and admittedly something that I've not previously considered when counseling patients on the use of egg donors. Kate, Micah, Pietro, thoughts on this? Man, it's already so hard to find an egg donor. Now we're going to be limiting egg donors to normal BMI. Come on. One study tells me you can do it. (laughs) One study you can do a high AMH, and that's fine. That was great. That expanded the pool, and now you're going to limit the BMI category for me. Maybe we're going to put all the donors on Ozempic. (laughs) (laughs) You said it, not me. I think you were. That was an excellent summary of of this rather complex article. Even I think the the small subgroups is is relevant. We have to be careful about drawing really hard conclusions based on these data. It's nice to have data that are consistent and reassuring that miscarriage rates are higher with higher BMIs. We just keep seeing it over and over and over again. And it's a great counseling tool to have these data. And I, I think it is hypothesis generating with regards to this interaction that they very creatively assess here. Yeah. I mean, the other thing that is glaringly missing from a lot of these studies is what is the impact of the partner's BMI on all of this? And maybe, you know, you could also extrapolate that many times couples have somewhat similar BMIs due to similar diets and lifestyle habits. But I would love to see this looking at a study on donors looking at source, you know, partner uh, BMI at the time of sperm collection. Egg donation programs are such a great opportunity for some really interesting methodology in answering some of these questions, just like really clever ways. I'm a huge fan of the paired sibling oocyte studies. Those are some of my favorite. Those I feel like you can really can really drill down on stuff. But kudos to the authors for for putting it together. And Eve is exactly right. Look at the supplementary figures. They're gorgeous. The heat maps are, are great to kind of tell the story. Yeah, I love a good heat map. <laughs> Shout out to uh, Blake Evans, one of our media editors for the Sister Journal, who also loves heat maps and always likes a shout out. So a great series of articles on uh, BMI and association. I think what we're all waiting for is treatment. Can we treat these patients in a way that will actually affect positively their fertility and their obstetric outcomes? And more on that hopefully coming. So we're moving on now to isthmuseals and whether isthmuseals are associated with reduced IVF, or is it a C-section, uh, or is it the fluid in the isthmuseal? And so this is a group out of Italy that did a systematic review and meta-analysis of this, titled Isthmuseal, not cesarean section per se, reduces IVF success. This is, as I said, a systematic review. There obviously aren't RCTs or clinical trials on this. You can't randomize people to having an isthmuseal. So this is all a, a synthesis of observational cohort data that's out there. And uh, they used very rigorous and appropriate uh, methodology. So they did random effects models, uh, which to review are going to give you wider confidence intervals and make it less likely to find a statistical significance. So it's a, it's a rigorous way to look at these data. They did unadjusted and adjusted models, and they did a lot of sensitivity uh, analyses. In other words, they're trying to slice their data every way they can and make sure that their findings are consistent as they looked at it. 
I do have to say when they say adjusted models, it's a little bit different than what we normally think of for cohort data. When we normally think of cohort data and they're adjusting uh, for variables, you know, they have that number for every single patient or hopefully most of the patients in that data set. When we're talking about combining studies, we don't have that for each individual patient, or at least they didn't in this case. Instead, they're just combining the crude uh, or adjusted odds ratios between the studies uh, as opposed to combining the unadjusted odds ratios. It's sort of a crude method of trying to adjust. It's not as precise as if you did maybe meta-regression or if you went even further and did individual patient uh, data from a meta-analysis, which can also be done. So an appropriate method, but uh, maybe the least precision in trying to adjust for potential confounders. So what did they find? Uh, the main finding is that having an isthmusial uh, was associated with a reduced odds of live birth, an odds ratio of 0.62. Well, what does that mean practically? Well, from an absolute risk reduction, that was a 12% absolute reduction in your chance of live birth. So if you come in with a 50% chance with an isthmusial, you're at 38%. So still uh, a chance, but certainly what I think we would all think is a clinically significant reduction. So they found that uh, having a C-section was the same as having a vaginal delivery. So C-section itself wasn't a problem. Having an isthmusial reduced your chance of live birth, as we said, compared to having a C-section without an isthmusial. And even worse was if you had fluid. If you had fluid in an isthmusial, that reduced your chance. If you had an isthmusial without fluid, that was the same as just having had a C-section or having had a prior vaginal delivery. So I think this is what we all uh, intuitively would have thought. Having a isthmusial with fluid is the worst case scenario. A C-section itself wasn't that bad. Now, they found that this reduced the chance of success at implantation, but also increased your risk of miscarriage. So reduced chance of that embryo implanting and also an increased chance of miscarriage. That's why they saw the reduction in live birth. And as they did all of their sub-analyses, none of the sub-analyses based on the quality of the data or whether it's fresh or frozen embryo transfer uh, affected the outcomes. And I'll have to say, despite my uh, critique of how they went about the adjusted models, it's maybe not the most precise. When you look at the forest plots, all these studies really have similar effect estimates. So it's very consistent amongst all of the observational studies of 10,000 embryo transfers, which makes me think that this is probably a real effect that's being measured. So Eve, I saw you uh, raise your hand. You had a thought and open it up for the group to discuss. Yeah, I mean, two thoughts. One, I was struck by how prevalent isthmuseals were. If you look at the prevalence in these populations, it's actually astounding. And wonder whether or not, I know in obstetrics, and granted, it's been, uh, I don't know, 20 years since I've done a C-section, but should they be paying, going back to more of a two-layer closure instead of a one-layer closure, which is standard uh, for a C-section? And I really wonder about that. Second, my big concern is really in gestational carriers. Should we be doing more screening before signing those GC contracts? And should we be specifically looking for isthmuseals in gestational carriers who have had one prior C-section? We in our practice don't allow more than three C-sections for a GC. And I think that's probably consistent with what most, I think that's in line with ASRM recommendations. But it really begs the question of should we be should we be restricting and or should we be more more diligent in that evaluation and perhaps exclude a GC who has a visible isthmusial? And I know finding a gestational carrier is even harder than finding an egg donor, but are we potentially doing a disservice to our patients by allowing them to select a gestational carrier that has an isthmusial? Yeah, you know, it's something that we've been talking about a lot at SGF and, and USF. And shout out to our NIH fellow, Alexi Pope, who just did an amazing presentation on this very topic for us all. Um, but we had the exact same debate about do you, number one, allow your patient to select a gestational carrier with an isthmusial? And number two, should you operate on a gestational carrier and surgically correct their isthmusial? I would say that's a hard no for me, but um, there was there was actually quite a lively debate amongst our colleagues as to whether that's something that should be considered. And so a, a little bit outside of the topic of this particular paper, but the data on the surgical corrections of, of Ismacil are, are really quite compelling. So I think not for GCs, but it, that's another topic that... Um, you know, I think we we will probably be seeing more fruitful research on in, in you know the coming months and years. 
One thing that's worth pointing out, if you look at the tables of uh, included studies, Mike, and kind of their definition of isthmusiol, it's a bit of a wandering definition. Um, some use a definition of at least one millimeter indentation, which is, everyone's got a one millimeter indentation if they've had a C-section, come on. Some of them use the more rigorous two millimeter definition. Some of them kind of use 2D ultrasound, 3D ultrasound. I think if you're going to be comparing these apples to oranges, the, you got to get the definition right. And that's part of the, the, the reason why some of these studies are just so hard to do is depending where you are in the world, you're measuring them differently. To Kate's point, the, the bigger question is, does repairing them change these outcomes? Does it kind of get you back to square one as if you didn't have an isthmus seal and you just had a C-section scar on your lower segment? And as someone who does C-section scar defect repairs, both hysteroscopically open, laparoscopically, I'll tell you, probably for every 10 patients I see for consultation for it, I'm operating on maybe one or two. I think there's kind of a very narrow window of, of patient who stands to benefit from it. And for me, and I think it's worth making the distinction, we talk about fluid in the in, in the C-section scar in the cavity, they're different. I think almost everyone who has an isthmus seal is going to have fluid in their C-section scar defect. It's a normal place where fluid collects. I'm much more concerned about fluid that's showing up in the fundal endometrium around the time of trigger, or particularly the day before transfer. So my paradigm for these patients is you're going to see fluid during the cycle. That's fine. Trigger them for their natural cycle. Bring them back the day before, before you thaw the embryo. And if you still see fluid in the fundal lining, it's probably a cycle that's worth canceling and having a discussion about the utility of a C-section scar defect. If you're not seeing fluid there and you're only seeing fluid in the niche, a bit more of a toss-up. I think there you could really have a, a shared decision-making. I think there's equipoise there, and we're not really sure what the, what the best thing to do for those patients is. I think that's a good point, Pietro. When this study says fluid, they're talking about intracavitary fluid, so fluid up at the endometrium where, where you would expect implantation. Your point on the heterogeneity is good. I didn't delve into that, and the authors talk about that. That's certainly why they use the random effects model, because there's not just sampling errors you're combining these studies. Some of them are measuring different things. They wanted to look at the depth of fluid, but the data wasn't there to look at that. Uh, they also had one study that showed FETs were less likely to have fluid than the stimulated endometrium, and which is why they did that some analysis, but not enough to make a conclusion that that's a, a treatment, but certainly something I think we probably all in practice look at before we, we go to surgery. All right. Excellent uh, article on a very challenging uh, subset of patients for us with the ISMACL. Kate, we have one more paper that's very cool looking at the quantification of uh, reproductive hormones, uh, the variability of that. Tell us about that. Yeah, I think this is something that, um, you know, the nerds and all of us kind of wonder about all the time. Like, does it matter when, what time of day we measure hormones and, and whether our patients have eaten and um, the data are shockingly sparse. So um, I was really impressed and grateful uh, to these authors, to Dr. Ali Ibarra et al., who did this analysis that was entitled Quantifying the Variability in the Assessment of Reproductive Hormone Levels. So the study endeavored to answer the clinically and I think physiologically interesting question as to what extent the hormones FSH, LH, and estradiol in women and testosterone in men vary over the course of the day, as well as following administration of nutrients. So they look both at the intravenous and oral administration of, of nutrients. So really quite a, a, a deep study with lots of, of great data. So there were 266 subjects, specifically 164 men and 102 women. And the subjects were derived from the placebo groups of 13 prior research studies conducted over approximately a decade in a single laboratory. The authors were really quite rigorous in their methods and provided a clear description of the quality control practices of this laboratory, of the assays used, and their standards. And so the rich data that were analyzed in the study comprised eight tables and six figures. So another good one for supplementary tables for when you, you go and take a look at this one. So the patient population represented a wide range of ages and reproductive stages. So for women, there were reproductive age and menopausal women. Further, both ovulatory and anovulatory women with anovulatory disorders of various etiologies were represented. And there were both women and men with hypoactive sexual desire disorder represented. So quite a clinically diverse data set as well. So the main findings were, I would say, generally not terribly surprising that kind of as we might expect, LH was the most variable of the hormones assessed and, and varied by 18% over the day, whereas um, FSH varied the least. Estradi estradiol and testosterone also dropped during the day, 
And I found it interesting that testosterone drops significantly after a meal and more so after a mixed meal. So that was defined as a meal containing fat and protein in addition to carbohydrate. Then, you know, when the subject was allowed to just eat what they wanted, they call that ad libitum feeding, or if they received an oral or IV glucose load. The authors did a coefficient of determination analysis to determine the number of daily samples that would be needed in this population for each hormone to reflect the mean value for this day. And so what they found was that in women, two values were needed to achieve an R-square over 0.9, which is the standard that they they were aiming for, um, for both FSH and LH, whereas only one value was needed for estradiol. And for men, three values were needed for LH whereas only one was needed for FSH and two for testosterone. So the analysis was strengthened in that they used bootstrapping to evaluate the confidence interval. So really a rigorous paper. So in conclusion, I don't know that this is a paper that we're going to use clinically by actually taking three values of LH for men um, when we're trying to assess their reproductive status. That said, there are some clinical pearls in here. One thing that we often tell our patients is strengthened, which is to check for their LH surge in the morning. That's when it's going to be the highest. So that's basically confirmed by this analysis. One thing that I think many of us don't do is think about having men do a testosterone fasting. So at the end of the day, I think a lot of us are telling our male patients that they should come in the morning for a testosterone level if we're worried about assessing hypogonadism, but not necessarily fasting. And they actually saw quite a a statistically significant decrease after that mixed meal in this population, which, you know, runs the risk of overdiagnosing hypogonadism if we're having men come in non-fasted. And, you know, we talked about last month or a couple months ago, you know, there's a, a sort of an epidemic of overtreatment of low T in this country. So certainly don't want to contribute to that by collecting the, the data improperly. Um, so I, I personally am, am grateful to these authors. I think while the, the clinical applications might be somewhat narrow, I think a lot of us will, and certainly researchers in the endocrine sphere in general can, can derive a lot of value going back to these data um, to look at what are appropriate normal ranges throughout the day and what's what's the variability. So I'm uh, interested to, to hear what you guys thought. What did you think, even Pietro and Micah? I found it really, I, I loved the paper and I, I agree that it appealed to my inner nerd. Your point about fasted testosterone is excellent and not something that I, it's going to be a new, a new skill that I uh, have picked up, a new nugget. But I was thinking about it more in terms of LH surge assessing post-Lupron trigger. There are oftentimes we have these very confusing pictures where we have an LH that's low, why we look at progesterone. But I think this lends some understanding as to how pulsatile LH really is. And when we see those lower LHs post-LH surge in the setting of a high progesterone, I think it also lends some credence to the fact of like, move forward, see what you get, and rest assured LH really is that pulsatile and that volatile in terms of the differences that are seen more so than any other hormone that they evaluated. Eve, it's interesting you mentioned that. I always chalked it up to, I saw a similar pattern at Cornell and, and, and have seen it at Boston IVF where some LHs are discordant with the for the progesterones. And I always chalked it up that these patients are sometimes triggering as early as 7 p.m. but as late as 2 a.m. And they're all coming in at 6 a.m. anyway for their for their blood draw the next morning. And of course, the LHs are going to be a little bit different compared to triggering later and triggering earlier. But it's interesting that you, you kind of made the connection between just the time of day where we're checking LHs. Um, so fasting testosterone, is that what we're all recommending now? I think so, but back to back to LH, you know, one thing, and we have done this in our practice a few times where the story is really confusing as to whether or not they're going to be successful with their blueprint trigger. We've actually brought them back in a few hours later for a second LH level and have seen marked variation. It's not something I do regularly. We're talking once or twice in a career for some of these really complex medical patients who really just can't have HCG and um, just food for thought. 
<laughs> so I think as we're going down this interesting discussion, I, I think this paper is in cycling, like these are in cycling women, correct? So th there's going to be a lot more LH pulsatility than, than what we see in someone who's downregulated with a GnRH analog and then being triggered where it's primarily medicine that's that's causing it. And so I do think you're right, Pedro, that's probably more time dependent upon when the, the medicine was given and how the ovary is responding than it is the pulsatility that's coming that we see from this study under unmedicated or unstimulated cycles. Is that accurate, Kate, from, from this paper? Yeah, it included both ovulatory and ovulatory and menopausal women and differentiated them and, and considered them um, in aggregate. That said, yes, they were not in any kind of an artificial stimulation syndrome. That said, I think the point is well taken that we should all maintain an extremely high threshold to be re-triggering patients, especially if they've had a, a you know reasonable delta in their serum progesterone concentration. You know, one thing I wish this paper had, and I mean, it's such a good paper that you can only wish for so many things, but is a look at serum progesterone concentrations and that variability. It's such a hard assay. And, uh, you know, we spend so much time thinking about it. I do anyway. And then of course, AMH would be a nice thing to see too. But, you know, again, can only wish for so much and grateful to these authors. This is classic science for science's sake. You know, it's uh, just cool to have this data. Absolutely. Great. Fantastic discussion today. As always, we are just highlighting some of the articles. There are some interesting letters to the editor. If you like reading those, there's some very good other original science, some outstanding video articles this month. Uh, Eve, Pietro, and Kate, as always, it's wonderful uh, talking with you, and we look forward uh, to meeting again next month. Bye, Micah. Bye, everyone. Bye, everybody. This concludes our episode of Fertility and Sterility on Air, brought to you by Fertility and Sterility in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. This podcast is produced by Dr. Molly Cornfield and Dr. Adriana Wong. This podcast was developed by Fertility and Sterility and the American Society for Reproductive Medicine as an educational resource and service to its members and other practicing clinicians. While the podcast reflects the views of the authors and the hosts, it is not intended to be the only approved standard of practice or to direct an exclusive course of treatment. The opinions expressed are those of the discussants and do not reflect fertility and sterility or the American Society for Reproductive Medicine.